The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. By the end of the summer, I'm going to be a broken record coming up here because it just astonishes me that that song didn't exist earlier this week. For God to use the gifts of our team, of Matt and Kara and all the team, to bring his word alive and a tune that hopefully will be stuck in your head and as you think about the fact that you serve the King of Glory this week and that he's with you, that he is mighty in battle, that he is for you and not against you. That's the beauty of the Psalms. And that's been the beauty within the church for the history of the church, that there are hymn writers and they write songs, but the church has always come back to the Psalms. And we come back to them as our book of prayer. We come back to them as our place of expression of our souls to God. Uh, that we come and we said last week that each of us have, has a deep and a profound desire for blessedness, for happiness. And the world offers so many counterfeit options of how do we find happiness? How do we find a blessedness? Is it in wealth? Is it in title? Is it in relationship? Is it in self-expression? And the scriptures say, no, blessedness comes uh, from a person who finds their life in the Lord. That they're like a tree firmly planted by streams of living water that bears its fruit in its season and its leaf never withers. That it stands uh, in the midst of all of the storms of life and that the righteous are with the Lord throughout all eternity. Uh, That we recognize that God is with us and that we, at the end of the Psalms, the Hallels, uh, that we sing praise to God, praise to the King because of all that He has done and that our souls are well with Him. And so this summer we're launching in uh, to this summer in the Psalms of looking through the Psalms uh, each week, of coming to them and allowing them to minister uh, to us. And as you've heard, this week we're looking at Psalm 24. Uh, If you're an overachiever and you like to get ahead, you can read Psalm 37 uh, next week, not now, Uh, next week. Uh, It'll be there for you later. Um, And so we'll be looking at that. But this week, this is a straightforward Psalm. Three stanzas, we know who the author is, that David wrote this psalm, but we don't understand or we don't know uh, the occasion, but most scholars, both rabbinic and Jewish scholars and Christian scholars, through the years have said that he most likely wrote this psalm as the Ark of the Covenant was being brought back in to Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant was the box that had been created by Moses, and in it uh, held the two tablets of the law along with some other uh, items that were sacred and holy to Israel. And that the ark would be carried with God's people into battle and be carried with God's people as they uh, traversed for 40 years uh, in uh, the desert and were safe there going into uh, the promised land. But over the course of time, the people of God drifted away from a relationship with him. And one great signal of that was the movement of the ark away from God's people. It became more... uh, of a good luck charm, like a cosmic rabbit foot, that if we have the ark, then we'll get uh, all of God's blessing. And God said, it's never been about the ark. It's been about relationship with me, and fidelity to me, my presence uh, with you. And so the splitting uh, and the loss of the ark took place when the ark was taken by the Philistines in First Samuel chapter 4. 
And the Philistines realized something. The God of Israel was not to be trifled with, and his ark was not a good relic to have in the museum. And so they quickly wanted to get rid of it, and they sent it back uh, to Abinadab uh, there in Israel. And Abinadab was faithful, and the Lord blessed Abinadab. And David saw, and he said, well, we need the ark to come now to Jerusalem. And so they began to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And you'll remember the story uh, that the ark began to teeter. Uh, and that Uzzah touched the ark, and Israel realized that this God is not to be trifled with either. And Uzzah died because the people hadn't come to God on his terms. They'd come to him on their own terms. And so the ark remained out of Jerusalem for a bit longer in Obed-Edom. And then finally David brought the ark in. And this was the psalm. This was the song Uh, This was the chant, as it were, uh, that would have been sung as the ark came into Jerusalem and eventually as the ark uh, went into the temple. So what do we learn from this very straightforward psalm written uh, by David as the ark of the covenant was brought into Jerusalem? We're going to look at three things this morning. Recognizing the king, of coming to the king, and then of welcoming the king. That we're learning about recognizing the true king, uh, of coming to the true king, and then welcoming uh, the true king. So the first point there, recognizing uh, the true king. The psalm begins by praising God as the master and the king of the universe. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The first thing that is established by David is God's absolute ownership of everything in all of the universe. Straight out of the gate. He says, everything, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The whole world belongs to him, but also everything within the world belongs to him. Everything therein, the fullness thereof. The Dutch theologian, the great Dutch statesman Abraham Kuyper wrote these words concerning this passage. In the total expanse of the human life, there is not a single square inch of which Christ, who alone is sovereign, does not declare, that is mine. He has ownership over all things. And the question then quickly becomes, upon what basis? One grounds does God have the audacity uh, to claim ownership uh, of all things? Well, David's next statement uh, explains that. He answers the question even as it's being asked in the hearts uh, of the reader that the basis of God's claim is the creation itself. That God said, I get to claim ownership over everything because I created everything. I am the creator uh, of all Things. God is the creator, and because he is the creator, he is also the king over all things. God's power in creation gives him the right to rule over everything that he has made, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. God doesn't just claim ownership as some king moving into somebody else's territory. He says, I created the territory. There was no kingdom before me. There was nothing before me. I spoke into nothingness and all that is came into being by the mere verbal statement coming forth from my mouth. 
That it wasn't by chance and it wasn't some cosmic algorithm working its way out that we all came into the complexity of life and the complexities of universes upon universes uh, that are being discovered day by day. So what we find in the midst of this psalm is an important aside for us. That the debate which is raging on in intellectual circles and all around the world in universities and in science labs, the debate about creation is a debate and not simply a discussion about the origin of species or about the beginnings of the world. You see, when people disagree on this, they are simply arguing much more about not how the universe was made, but who's in charge of that universe. Because how the universe was made has an awful lot to say about who's in charge of it. And if the universe was made by mistake, if the universe uh, was simply a conglomeration of events that took place with atoms bumping into one another and sludge somehow turning into fish and fish turning into animals on the shore and animals eventually becoming us with some of our species still stuck in trees and the rest of us moving to where we are, then no one has any claim upon on the high ground or an authoritative position. But you see, if, because if God is not the, the creator, he cannot be the king. If he's not the creator, he cannot be the king. But on the flip side of that, if he is the creator, then he has all the right to be the king. So what you view about creation matters. Young people, it matters in your schooling. It matters in the universe. It matters in the world because you see... There are opposing worldviews at play. It used to be uh, that the movement started with enlightenment uh, and moved to what would be sort of a deism. Uh, That in the days of Handel, when he wrote this great movement of the Messiah, much of which came uh, from this psalm, uh, that deism was the belief in God as the cosmic watchmaker, that God started the universe, he created it, they would give God uh, all of that, uh, but they would say he's removed himself from it, and the clock is moving and ticking, and it will keep ticking until it eventually ends, but God doesn't interfere, the supernatural never interferes within the natural. But that movement has since given way to what we would call naturalism, when nature is all that there is and all that there ever will be and all that there ever has been. You see, it's more than a denial of creation. It's a denial of God's sovereign rule over that creation. That is the prevailing view within our secular world. That's why it matters what you believe uh, about these things. And the Bible has something to say about it. The Bible isn't mute on this. It's not silent on this. Right out of the chute, Genesis 1.1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Probably the most important statement in all of the Bible. Because it forces us to deal with a creator and a ruler and a sovereign who is over all things. Everything in the universe bears the mark and the inscription of its creative God. The fact, this fact alone gives God the right to claim his kingly authority over every single person in all of creation, including, by the way, every single person sitting here today. Because he created you. Because you're not just an accident Because you're not just an algorithm working its way out in the cosmos, but because you were fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Because God knew you before the very foundations of the world. Because he's the one who breathed life into you. Because you bear his image in your life. Because he created you, he therefore has sovereign rule over you and our lives are accountable to him. We are not independent, autonomous beings living in a world with a bunch of other autonomous, independent beings who just happen to bump into one another and seek some significance and meaning in life. What a sad existence if that is what you believe. You see, science doesn't disprove creation. What science is finding more and more is it proves the complexity and the beauty of creation. Organic matter on Mars, and Christians are going, oh no! I'm like, how cool! It doesn't mean that there's another species on Mars that needs a different savior. It says there's organic matter on Mars. That doesn't undermine the scriptures. The complexity of all that we are actually comes and affirms the beauty of God's creative order. Pre-enlightenment days, the study of theology was the mother of all sciences. Biology took meaning within a view of God's created hand. Geology, the understanding of how God created earth. Mathematics and all of those things bringing together this beauty. Medicine and the complexities of the human body. All of these things. And the significance of this is that God is the ruler of all things. Israel had a small view. They said God's our God. He is our ruler. And this psalm, David says, no, no, no. He's the ruler of all the earth. He is the, God, he is the cosmic king. And the entrance of the cosmic king is an event that has universal significance. And if it has universal significance, it most likely has personal significance. And the personal significance is this. God is the creator king over all things. He is sovereign and he is in charge of everything. The question then becomes, if God is the king of the universe and everybody owes him their allegiance, how is it that we are granted permission and access and audience to him? How do we get to him? We know he's there and we know that we owe him allegiance and we owe him uh, all of our fidelity. But how do we get there? And that's this second point of coming to the king. How is it that we come to the king? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. So the argument goes something like this. If God is the king of the universe, based upon the fact that he created all things and he is the supreme being in all of the universe, then he gets to set the rules of who has access to him and how they enter into that access, right? Does that make logical sense? This is yes. There you go. Some of you are like, I'm, just, I'm lost. God's saying, hey, I created all things. And you get to have access to me, but you have to have access to me on my terms. You don't get to determine the terms by which you march into my room. No parent allows their children to march into their presence on their terms, do you, parents? No, this would be no. No. Kids don't get to make the rules. The parents get to make the rules in the house. Parents, yes, you do. You have that privilege in the home. And so if we don't work in human relationships that way, God says, you can't work in cosmic relationships either. 
And so he says, here's the standards, or here are the requirements that I give you about how to enter in. Clean hands, a pure heart. You don't serve idols, and you have faithfulness and truthfulness to the people around you. He's saying there's four requirements, at least here in this psalm. There's an outward obedience, those clean hands. It refers uh, to keeping the keeping of God's commands, that there's a piety uh, and there's a righteousness within our lives. It's not a ritual purity, and it's not a personal hygiene issue. It's outward obedience. He says, but there's also an inward integrity that's required of the individual in order to have access and relationship to me. They have to have a pure heart. That language should sound familiar in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. There's something that is transformed within the life. It's not external. We talk regularly uh, that we don't want to be about behavioral modification, that we want to be about heart transformation, that the behavior follows the heart, that we want to deal with heart and heart issues. And what God is saying here is that this is the life of the soul, that there's an inward integrity, that there's a transformation that takes place uh, at the heart level. That there's a fidelity to the king, that you don't serve other idols. It says that you don't bow down uh, to other idols. You don't make, uh, it says there, uh, that you don't lift up your soul to what is false. Our world's filled with idols. And not little ones that you set on uh, your mantle at night and bow down to. Uh, but the world is filled with idols which demand of us, if you serve me, then I'll bless you. If you serve your job, then your job will bless you with happiness. Uh, if you go and you find marriage, and then children, the God of children and the idol of children say, if you have children, then you'll be blessed. If you have marriage, then you'll be blessed. If you have lots of power, then you'll be blessed. If you look great and you stay looking great and all the way until you shouldn't, uh, that then you'll uh, be blessed. Then you'll have happiness uh, in life and all of that. And so we go and we serve these idols. And God says, don't serve other gods. Don't serve other lovers. Serve me only and have a fidelity to me. And be truthful in your relationships with other people. That you're a person of integrity. If you took all four of those and you rewrapped them a little bit in a package, it would sound something like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's the person who has access to the king. That's the person who gets to go in. Psalm 15 says it this way. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary and who may live on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does, not wa- does what is right and speaks truth in his heart and does not slander with his tongue, does, not, does, does no evil to his neighbor, uh, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Again, the question now enters in. How in the world then can anybody, myself included, possibly meet this incredibly high standard of a loving and sovereign God? How can anybody enter into his presence if we have to have all this perfect and right? Well, the answer comes in verse 5. The person that he will receive a blessing from the Lord and a righteousness from the God of his salvation. That the only way to enter in uh, is through this righteousness that is from 
his Savior, another translation of that same word. This is probably one of the most remarkable verses in all of the New Testament, for it encapsulates the New Testament understanding of justification by faith alone. That it's not based on our works. That we don't do these things first in order to gain access, but we gain this access and entrance because of the righteousness, because of this goodness that's given to us by God. This isn't based upon the work of the individual, but it is based upon the work of the God who is our salvation, the God who is our Savior. The old Scottish theologian David Dixon said it this way on this verse. The holy life of the true believer is not the cause of his justification before God, but he shall receive justification and eternal life as a free gift from God by virtue of the covenant of grace. Therefore, it is said here that we shall receive righteousness from the God of his salvation. So who's the person who can ascend the hill? Who is the person who has access to God? It's the person who has received the very righteousness of Christ. Now that seems incredibly simple. But here's what I find most times, many, way too often in my conversations with folks. When I talk to people about their lives and their spiritual well-being, many times I go back to two very simple questions. And you need to have these uh, in your repertoire. That says this, hey, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? You know, I've never heard anybody say, nope, heading to hell. On my way, don't have a care in the world, I'm going to hell. Going to burn forever. Everybody I've ever talked to said, oh, I'm going to heaven. Yeah, I'm going to heaven. Second question. Well, tell me, when you get to heaven and you're standing before God and he looks at you and he says, why should I let you uh, into my heaven? The responses come quick and fast and furious. Well, you see, I've been a good person and I've gone to church and I've done good things and the good things that I do, uh, I really hope and are very hopeful that they'll outweigh uh, the bad things that I do and I've worked really hard, Bill, to be a good Christian and I attend church and I tithe off of the gross and not the, not the net and I, I come to church even sometimes twice a week uh, and I do all this and I've been somewhat faithful in my life and I don't lie a ton of some. I mean, everybody lies, Bill. I mean, no one doesn't lie. So I do that and I've never murdered anybody but I guess I did hate somebody so that's murder. But, you know, well, what about Jesus? And you're like, oh, I am I'm not denying Jesus. I need him too. Oh. So your salvation is based upon Jesus plus. So Jesus' righteousness plus your righteousness will get God to say, welcome into my heaven. This verse and all of the pounding of scripture over and over again, it says that our salvation is based upon the completed work of Jesus Christ alone. Not our own. That it comes from Him alone. That we can't earn it. That we can't be good enough to get it. And it can't be a mixture of Jesus plus anything. And we live in a world that's always God plus something. How many of you watched the horse race yesterday? It's okay. It's not a sin. (laughs) You watched the horse race. I watched the horse race. Okay, good. My conscience is clear. My pastor watched the horse race. So, I thought it was fascinating. Because Bob Baffert, who is the incredible trainer of the last two um, Triple Crown winners, Justify yesterday, before the race was asked, how you feeling? Oh man, we're needing the luck. And so last time I was here, we had the Burger King guy dressed in his costume. So I got Burger King back with me because we need all the good karma we can have in order to win this race. And so you saw him standing there uh, in the stands with Burger King. Right next to him with the big plastic head. After the race, they interviewed Bob Baffert. 
Man, what an incredible race. What an incredible horse. I first want to just thank God for all that he did. Well, which is it, Bob? Is it karma and Burger King? Or is it the God of the universe? Or is it some sort of soup mix of all of them? Now, I'm not bashing on Bob. After I'm saying that he's a perfect picture of our culture which says, Hey, I need God. I first want to thank God. Okay, what does that mean? Versus the jockey who was on his horse, and when he took off his hat, because you don't wear a hat in the presence of the king or of any dignitary, and he looked up to heaven, and the interviewer said, tell us about the race. I first want to give glory to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who saved my life. He got it right. Because it's not Jesus plus anything. And you need to make sure you understand that. That it is God's work And that sinners can only be justified by a God who saves. You will never have access to this God unless He saves you. And here's how He saves you. Through Christ who is our Redeemer. Because it spoke here uh, about something that had to be offered. Well, this was going to the temple. And you would remember the old Jewish way of approaching the temple. And approaching God always had to have animals sacrificed in order to atone for sin. And that God cannot allow access into his life, into his presence, into his family without the requirements that have always been there. And those requirements were that you entered God's presence through an acceptable sacrifice. And the acceptable sacrifice that we have is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. His perfection given on our behalf. If it was a requirement for access to God in the Old Testament, it remains the requirement for God and access to God in the New Testament. It's always through a sacrifice. It's always through Christ who said this, my sacrifice on the cross, I rip the veil. From the top down, so now you have access to my Father. Now it's through and over me uh, that you go to Him and you are in relationship with the King. And now, it is now that you begin to see that because of my righteousness given to you and my Spirit given to you, you have holy hands. You have a life that's a life that desires obedience. uh, That you don't want to be false towards your neighbor. That all of a sudden, this is how Charles Spurgeon said it. It is possible that you are saying, and it is possible, I shall never enter into the heaven of God, for I have neither clean hands nor a pure heart. Look then to Christ, who has already climbed the holy hill. He has entered as the forerunner of those who trust him, follow in his footsteps and repose upon his merit. He rides triumphantly into heaven, and you shall ride there too if you trust him. But how can I get the character described, some would say? The Spirit of God will give you that. He will create in you a new heart and a right spirit. Faith in Jesus is the work of the Holy Spirit, and all the virtues are wrapped up in it. So we have access to this King through Christ our Lord. And so I'd stop point two for just a moment. Make sure you have that correct. That it's not you plus Jesus, but it's Christ alone for your salvation. So that when you are asked those questions by me or anybody else, why would God let you into his heaven? You can say with incredible confidence, because of him, my Savior, who stands in my place. And my faith in him and the grace that has been given to me, that's my only hope and stay in this life. And so the very last thing to do then is to welcome the king. 
We recognize the king. We understand how it is that we have entrance into the king's presence. And now we welcome the king in the last few minutes that we have. The psalm comes to this climax in the final stanza. David has asserted God's rule over all of creation. He's explained how it is that you enter into his royal presence. And now the king comes in his glory. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory, the Lord of hosts? He is the King of glory. Selah. So look at the form for a second, because you're probably going, why does he ask the question? We know who it is. In England, years ago, when the king would be entering back into London... There would be a herald of the king who would go before uh, the king and would stand at the temple bar outside of the gates of London uh, and would yell, open the gates! And the people behind the gates would say, who is there? And the response would be, the king of England! And the gates would open and the king and all of his entourage would enter and the city would celebrate the presence of the king. This psalm is written in that form, and they probably gained their understanding from this understanding. That as the ark was coming in to Jerusalem, as the people were there, the choirs and all of the soloists and all of the people that were there, and the king was coming, someone would say, the herald would say, lift up your gates, O head... Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, you ancient doors. The King of glory may come in. And someone from behind the gates would say, Who's the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. So lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And again, the response, Who is the King of glory? And the gates would begin to open. The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. And He would enter into the city and the people would respond pretty much how we respond on Sunday mornings. Eh. That was alright. That was kind of cool. We'll grade that sermon and worship song later at lunch. We'll just have that. No! Because the King is in our presence. This is unbelievable. They would become undone. Why would they become undone? Because the very presence of the King, the Creator of the universe, the God who rules all things, who's given them access through Christ their Son, their Messiah, who they were looking forward to, has come into their presence. And they went, hmm. No. Go look on the news today. Uh, In Washington, D.C., the Capitals won the NHL title. And over on the left coast, The Golden State Warriors uh, won the NBA title. And there's going to be parades and there's going to be celebrations. There's going to be thousands of people lining streets. I was watching people losing their minds yesterday in public places because some guys who can dribble a piece of leather and some guys who can skate and slap around a piece of plastic won a trophy that one day won't be around and will tarnish. And they went nuts! How much more? Should we lose our minds in the presence of the king of the universe? But yet we don't. We're dignified Presbyterians. Some of you are going, I'm not Presbyterian. I just come to a Presbyterian church. I'm the people who say amen and raise my hands. Well, thank God for you. And, uh, but we're to worship him. Because the king of glory has come in. 
Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord of all creation. And you can imagine, and I've got to move quickly, you can imagine it was a really festive day when the ark came into Jerusalem. They celebrated like crazy. And that was just the ark. And then there was another day, a few years later, uh, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And there was a celebration. Hosanna, Hosanna, praise be to Hosanna. And interestingly enough, rabbinic tradition teaches us uh, that certain psalms were sung within the temple courts on certain days of the week. And on the first day of the, Jewish, of the Jewish week, which would have been our Sunday, Psalm 24 is always sung. Interesting, you remember what day Jesus entered into Jerusalem? On the first day of the week, on the Jewish calendar. So as the people outside the city were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, here is our king. Inside in the temple, the priests and the Levites and all were singing, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. The king of glory is coming in. And they didn't realize that he actually did. Do you think God knew that? What a coincidence. Odd. He said, no, the fulfillment of this psalm is taking place in your midst and you're going to sing about him on Sunday and you're going to crucify him on Friday. Because just because you sing about him on Sunday does not mean you recognize him as your true Savior and King. But there are people who do. Because one day, Jesus ascended and entered into another kingdom. And the scriptures say something like this, because those first two of the ark going in and Jesus going in, they pale in comparison to his ascension into his glorious seating by the Father. God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, Philippians 2. And after he had provided purification for sins, he, the Son, sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, Hebrews 1, 3. And he has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given. And that he has been given the name which is above all names. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And when he ascended into heaven, and it was as if the angels were standing out, going open up the gates and someone on the other side going who's coming in the king of glory rich in battle and the gates would swing open and he would walk in victorious that he defeated sin and he defeated satan and he defeated death and he showed the marks of the war and of the battle and the people in heaven and all the saints who were there just roared in his presence that's what we do on sunday mornings by the way we roar in the presence of our King. We join in with the continual worship that's around Him. And then every day that we go out within our lives, we are worshiping God through our lives. Soli Deo Gloria. That what you do in your studies, what you do with your computers, what you do in your work, what you do in your life, what you do at everything, it's saying the King of Glory is here. Do you think the celebration in heaven was muted at all? The angels and the saints were amazed that the king was with them and that Christ had returned victorious. And we should have that same amazement that this king, this Christ, is ours. So, what do we do with all of this? There is one final place that Jesus has to make his royal entrance. And that's into your heart. You have to determine. Are you going to bend the knee to this king? 
and give him your life and serve him in obedience and fidelity? Or are you going to reject him and stand in opposition to him and wait for his returning and hope that maybe the mixture of karma and Burger King and good luck will somehow get you the golden ticket? If you're a believer here today and you've already placed your trust in Jesus Christ, then I encourage you and affirm to you, drive that salvation deep into the very marrow of your soul. Preach the gospel to yourself of grace, uh, of the beauty of the righteousness that you have uh, in Him, and, and then both give Him praise as your Savior and obey Him as your King. You can't have Him as Savior and not as King. You can't have him as one and not the other. He is either both or he is neither in your life. And the church has slipped too far into a sense of, I've got my fire insurance, I've got a little bit of Jesus, and I can go live whatever hell-like life I have and want to live because I know that at the end of the day, I get to go to heaven. And Jesus says, I don't know you. I know people who know me and have a deep and passionate desire to follow me, who have received me. So trust and obey him today. And if you're not a Christian here today, then Jesus now stands outside your gates. And the king of glory is saying, open your gates. That I can enter in and establish my life and my rule and I will destroy all your enemies. I will bring back the life that you need and have so desperately wanted. I will give you a hope and a future that is secure. I will be with you and for you and not against you. But you have to open the gates and bend the knee. So before you leave today, I simply have this question. Will you open your gates and your hearts to the King and receive Him? It doesn't matter what age you are. From the young to the oldest, the King said He loves to enter in and to take up his residence, and to bless those who are his. Let's pray.